Jesus, we come to you this morning. A stubborn people. God, we have planted our feet in this world. And we won't budge. But God, today, this morning, I pray, God, it will be the beginning of that. Loosening the dirt around our feet, Father. And taking your hand and giving you everything that we want to control. Surrendering all to you. Knowing that your will is best. Grow us into a people of God, into a church of God that loves you and knows you and knows your word and your truth. God, that we would depend and lean on you. God, because you know us and you formed us and you love us. God, we love you in return. Amen. Have a seat there. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. Ephesians chapter 5. You might also go ahead and put like a piece of paper in 1 Peter chapter 3 and maybe Genesis chapter 2. We're going to have to to lean on um, those places as well. Ephesians chapter 5. So go ahead and flip there. Um, For the men, this this is the passage we've been waiting for. Amen? Okay, now see, that was actually an IQ test. I'm really happy that there wasn't one man that said amen to that, right? That would be a really dumb thing to do today. And so we we are into a difficult passage. So we'll start with the same two um, statements that we made last week. Number one, marriage needs to be redeemed in our culture. I I don't think you have to have a real high IQ to look around and see that, you know? Um, If you look around, you can see that the state of marriage in our culture is suffering. It's not very good, right? I mean, if you just look around, you're going to see a lot of marriages are crumbling. And and for the ones that do make it, they're surviving, right? I mean, they're two people living under the same roof, but just two different lives. And so you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that the state of marriage is in trouble, that culturally marriage needs to be redeemed. It has been cheapened. It's been marginalized. It's been pushed to the side. That marriage needs to be redeemed. Words like irreconcilable differences and incompatibility has risen to the surface on it right? And so it's made, it's made divorce and, and pushing marriage aside stomachable for us. So marriage needs to be redeemed in our culture. Let me take this a step further, though, um, and say this, that the roles within marriage need to be redeemed in our culture. What we're going to preach today, like, <laughs> I, I just, I've, I've laughed this week thinking what, what somebody, if they just kind of walked in off the street, would think about this, right? I mean, they would think that we're absolute idiots, Right? I mean, so, so I think we just need to, to just take a step back and say that in our culture, the roles in marriage needs to be redeemed. The roles in marriage, like it, it, we all affirm that we are equal before God. But, the, but what we're saying is that we're, we're distinct before God. That men and women are also different. And listen, the culture's um, lack of recognition of that is to the culture's detriment. It's not to their benefit. And so there's a lot of other ways you can go about it, right? But there's not a better way and there's not a more satisfying way than God's design for this thing. So culture needs to, marriage and the roles in marriage needs to be redeemed. But okay, now here's the thing that I want to just keep kind of pressing down on us. Is it's not just a cultural issue. This is a church issue. And the problem is not how culture views marriage. The problem is how the church views marriage. That's where the problem is. I mean, I think we would all say that the church of God, the people of God changed by the gospel of God should be the people on the planet who display what marriage could be, should be, and can be. 
But I mean, if you just look around at the state of marriages within church, you see the exact opposite of that play out. That this is not the place where we display that. Chances are even higher, some statistics say, that your marriage is going to implode if you claim to be a Christian. There's a problem with that. So marriage needs to be redeemed in the church. Okay, now let's take it one step further in the church. Not only does marriage need to be redeemed, but the roles within marriage in the church needs to be redeemed. The the problem with, with a lot of churches and a lot of preachers is that we have grown scared to death to dive into this issue. We have been, we've been enculturated. You remember the definition from last week? We've been enculturated. The, the way that the culture views life is more normal to us than the way God views life. And so what that's produced are people and churches who are scared to go here, right? And so rather than going here, we'll just kind of scrape it under the rug and hope for the best, right? That is to the church's detriment. That's to the church's detriment. This is a good and glorious thing that we're talking about. It's not something that we need to scrape under the rug like it's your crazy uncle, right? I mean, this is a good thing. So, So the roles in marriage need to be redeemed, not just in culture, but they need to be redeemed in the church. Okay, so now, now here's what I want to just tell you that is my goal up front today. It is not um, to, to peddle soft truth on this issue. My goal, isn't it, isn't it a tragedy when beauty is scorned, when beauty is belittled? And so goes the role in marriage, in the church. And so, so here's the goal of this morning. It's to hold up God's design, to, to kind of dust it off, polish it. And here's my prayer for all of us in here. Is that the Holy Spirit would make these things beautiful to you. I can't do that. I don't have compelling enough words. There aren't words that can make these things beautiful. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So this is my hope for specifically this morning as we address ladies. This is my hope for you. That these things would be beautiful to you. That they wouldn't be demeaning to you. They wouldn't feel that way. They would feel beautiful because God has made them and made you to work in them. Right? Okay, so with the ladies, let me, let me say two things to our ladies to get us started here. Um, two prefaces. Number one is that you have to make a choice when we open up the word and work through it. You have to make a choice as to whether or not you're going to stand over the word or under the word. So so you have to make a choice this morning. Am I going to position myself over the word? Well, I'll be the judge of that. I mean, I'll be the judge if this is good or bad. As if you know better than the Bible, because that's over the word, or you're going to fall under the word. And you're going to allow the truth of Scripture to press your life into the image of Christ. So you have to make a decision where you're going to stand, over or under. And my hope for you is that you will get under the word today. Even when it feels a little bit threatening, which it probably will. Even when it feels that way, that you would position yourself under the word so the Holy Spirit can press you into Christ's likeness. Okay, now this is my other hope for you ladies. And it's, it, I mean, this is consistent throughout as we talk about marriage. Next week will be headship. But my hope for you is that when the Holy Spirit begins convicting and begins moving in your heart, that you will be ready to repent and to run to God. That you will not stiff arm God. This is the imagery we used last week. That you will be faithful to crawl up on God's little surgical table as he brings his sin-destroying scalpel and goes to cutting on you right? I mean, this is how God changes us. This is how he does it. And we need to lay still as he does it, right? And and that's always going to be painful, but surgery is always sanctifying. 
You don't get cancer out of your body without it, right? And you don't get sin out of your heart without it. So my hope for you is that you would be ready to repent, ready to run from God, to God when, when you hear what he's got to say to you this morning. Okay, now let me say one thing to the guys, then we're in Ephesians chapter 5. To the guys, I'm the first to admit that, that one of the primary words I think could just describe the whole kind of race of males, right? It is this word called idiots, right? I place myself in that, right? Um, there, there's times where, where that is the one word to describe us. Now, I, so I, I just want to preface this morning by just reminding you of something that would be really stupid to do, right? Um, this would be a really stupid thing to do when you leave today, when you get in the car and when you're driving home, is to look over at your wife and say, um, I, I think he was talking to you today. I mean... <laughs> Did you hear that? I mean, I think your name was in the title of the message. What? I mean, that, that would not be a smart thing to do, right? Okay, so, so guys, look at me here. You need to take a step back and allow the Holy Spirit to do his thing. You need to pray for your wife. You don't need to be the Holy Spirit in your, in your wife's life, right? You need to be a good husband and pray for, her, okay? Here we go, Ephesians chapter 5. Um, Ephesians chapter 5 is one of the most beautiful passages on the family. I mean, it is a beautiful thing. And here's what it's going to say in, in 532. Paul's going to remind us of what marriage is for, right? Marriage is for the gospel's sake. The re- marriage is a temporary arrangement meant to point to a, an, an eternal reality. That's what marriage is for. It's a temporary thing. We're not going to be married in heaven, right? It's not going there. It's a temporary arrangement to point to an eternal reality. So men, here's your role. Here's how you display the gospel. Men are a metaphor in marriage. Men are meant to display Christ, his love for the bride, his love for the church. You're meant to display Christ to the world. That's your job in marriage. Ladies, This is your job in marriage. You are meant to display the church's loving and joyful and satisfying response to Christ. That's your role. So men have a role in marriage. Ladies have a role in marriage. They're both good. Okay, now here's what Paul's going to do to us in in chapter chapter 5, verse 22. He's going to start unpacking for you ladies what it looks like to be the church responding to Christ. And here it is, verse 22. Look at it with me. It says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Here's the clear command. Wives, submit to your husbands. Okay, now ladies, take a deep breath. Get your finger off the trigger. Put the gun down, right? Wives, submit to your husband. That, that's the clear command. Okay, so, so let me start by saying a couple of things on submission. Number one is that we're all called to submit. This isn't unique just to ladies. We are all called to submit. So first and foremost, every person on the planet, first and foremost, is required, called to submit to Christ. This is a universal call to submit to him, to to line your life up underneath Jesus. That's a universal call. Now, behind Christ, there's a lot of things the Bible calls us to submit to, that God calls us 
all to submit to. In 1 Peter 2, you get a list of some of them. In 1 Peter 2, he's going to talk about the, the authorities that God has placed over our life. Things like human institutions, things like governments, things like law officers, things like the law, right? We're to submit to them. Everybody's supposed to. And listen, I, there's a part of me that rails against that. Every time I get in my truck, I'm a little bit angry. And here's why I'm a little bit angry. Because I have to put that ignorant seatbelt on right? Now, it's not that I don't like a seatbelt. I'm okay with seatbelts. I just don't like somebody telling me I have to put the seatbelt on, right? I mean, do y'all feel that? I mean, I, I don't like that. And none of us really like submission, but we're all called in a lot of different areas to submit to laws, right? I mean, that's a calling on our life. Um, you keep going down, and, 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 and Peter, in First Peter 2, is going to say that we're to submit to employers, I mean, that should be a thing that we do. We work hard regardless of how they treat us. That we're to submit to our employers. Okay, you could go to Hebrews 13 and see that we're called to submit to local church leaders. Not the leader of every local church, but the one you step into and make a covenant with. You're to submit to their leaders knowing, here's what Hebrews 13 says, this is terrifying for me. Knowing that that leader, those leaders in the local church are going to give an account for your soul someday, Right? So, so we're called to submit to local leaders in the church. Um, I mean, we could go down the list. Ephesians um, chapter 6, we're going to get here in a few weeks. Kids, teenagers are called to submit to parents, right? Okay, so, so you get, a, there's a lot of different, like, it's a universal thing here. Jesus and a lot of other things fall underneath that. So submission is not a unique calling. It is something that all of us are called to do in certain situations and environments. Now, here's what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 24. Wives, although we have all been called to submit to certain things, you have a unique calling from God to submit in the context of your marriage. It's a unique calling. So, so submission is not just for wives. It's for everybody. Like if you look at even the context in 521, right before 522, there's an idea of being filled with the Spirit leads to mutual submission. It's a universal thing. The posture of all of our lives, if we're filled with the Spirit, should be a posture of submission to people. But that doesn't take away from Paul saying as he turns the gaze of God on ladies in marriage. Paul saying, you've got a unique calling and responsibility. And listen to this, ladies, a privilege to submit to your husbands. So it's a unique calling. Okay, now, now here's what I want to do um, with the morning. I, I want to try to do three things with this command to submit. I want to try uh, to give the context of the command. Like where does this sit in the Bible, one? And then two, I want to try to clarify what does it exactly mean. And then I want to commend it to you as something great and glorious. Which it is. It's God's design here, right? And so I, I want to do those three things. So let's start with the context. Here's the context of the command. Okay, now, now here's the thing with this, with this issue of submission. In our culture, there is like a bucking of headship in general. And so there are people who would love just to cut this little verse out of Scripture and to act like it's not even there. But they know they can't do that and be legitimate. And so here's the next best alternative. Rather than cutting it out of Scripture, they try to explain it away as they leave it in Scripture. Okay, that, that's the alternative. And here's one of the primary ways that people seek to do this. Is they look at this command and they'll make this statement or this kind of a thought process goes along with it. That this is a cultural command. That this command is rooted in culture. So if you go back to first century living, women weren't treated overly well. So this is a reflection of sin in the culture. 
Okay, this is how people try to, one of the ways people try to explain this command away. Okay, now this is the biblical response to that. Is this command is not rooted in culture. It's rooted in creation. That's where this command gets its, kind of its foundation. Okay, so, so here, let's kind of, as we build this context, I'll give you three statements for the context of it. Number one, submission is God's design. Okay, now Ephesians 5.31, you see that? that? That is a quote of Genesis chapter 2. So Ephesians 5 is rooted in Genesis chapter 2, in creation. Okay, so now if you want to flip back to Genesis chapter 2, here's what we're going to find. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God takes some dirt and he breathes into it and man is created. Man is created first. God breathes into this thing and here is a man right? Here he is. Okay, now here was the problem with man. If you come down about 10 verses into like 217, 218, right in there, you're going to see that God looks at man. He's created all these animals to go along with man, but there's, he says this, there's not a suitable helper. I mean, you're alone. It's not good for you to be alone. So, so here's what God's saying, that dogs just aren't doing the job, right? I mean, they may be man's best friend, but they're just not doing the job in this thing. And cats, the lack of personality of all cats, are not cutting it here, right? And the cat lovers all hate me right now. Uh, okay, so, so he's saying that there is not a suitable helper. There, there is not a relational equivalent to Adam. To, to relate to a dog, you have to get on a dog's level, right? Okay, that, that's the problem with dogs. I mean, I, I agree, they're great, but you just got to be a, a, on a dog's level to talk to them, right? You got to start barking and things. Okay, so, so you get the idea here. So, so here's what God says. The, it's not good for you to be alone. I need to make a suitable helper for you. It does not say, I'm going to make somebody that's helpless. Okay, that's not the image. It is a suitable helper. So here's what God does. He gives Adam some morphine, puts him to sleep, opens up his side, breaks off a rib, and he makes the lady. Okay, now listen. He makes the lady from Adam and for Adam. That is what this command is rooted in. That's it. It's, it's rooted in this idea that God made Eve, the woman, from and for Adam. That, that's, where this, that's where this drives down to. This is what it's rooted in. It's not rooted in a cultural sin. It's not rooted in a cultural thing. It's rooted in creation. Now, okay, now let me take this a step further and say this. Submission did not start at creation. Submission has always existed. It's existed as long as God has existed. And that's been forever, right? So, so as long as God has existed, submission has existed. Now, when you think about God, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that God is in a trinity, right? You've got the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And when you look at how they relate to each other, submission is present within the Godhead. So, so here's what 1 Corinthians 15 is going to say about Jesus, that he submitted himself or subjected himself to the Father. Sub submission has always been around. It's not new to creation. It has always existed. Now, here's what Wayne Grudem says about this. It's going to be on the screen for you. I'll read it. He says this, The idea of headship and submission never began. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. And in this most basic of all relationships, authority is not based on gifts or ability. It is just there. The relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one of leadership and authority. On the one hand, and voluntary, willing, and joyful submission to that authority on the other hand. 
we can learn from this that submission to a rightful authority is a, listen to this, is a noble virtue. It is a privilege. It is something good and desirable. It is this, uh, it is the virtue that has been demonstrated by the eternal son of God forever. Ladies, look at me. Jesus is not asking you to do anything that he has not done. Submission is a great and glorious thing because it is God's thing. It is his design. He made it. He did it. He has eternally existed that way. It's a great and glorious thing because it's God's thing. God designed submission. Next statement, context here. God designed it. Now man has distorted it. Now this is our problem with submission right here, okay? So now if you go to Genesis chapter 2, Okay, so, so God has made a suitable helper, not a helpless helper, a suitable helper, right? So, so God has made a suitable helper, and, and now they are living together. They are doing their thing. It is going well. Adam wakes up from his sleep, and in chapter 2, verse 23, he sees Eve. This is the first love song in human history. You see it in verse 23? It just sounds a little bit weird. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. We just don't write songs like that. That's poetry. That's a song, Right? He breaks out in song when he sees Eve. Okay, now you get to chapter 3 and everything unravels. Um, you've got the serpent, Satan. He comes not to Adam, who got the command, right, to, to, to not eat of any other tree. Okay, you stay away from that one. Okay, Adam gets the command. Satan comes to Eve, who got that command from Adam, and he tempts her. I mean, surely it's not that bad. I mean, you could be like God here. Okay, now, now here's the amazing thing, is Adam is sitting passively in the shadows. Eve takes the fruit, eats it, and passes it to her passive husband, who eats it as well. Now, at that moment, submission and authority are completely distorted. At that moment, things go bad. Now, look at 3.16, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. And you start to see a glimpse of where authority goes and where submission goes. Um, you see verse 316 there, come down a couple of lines. Your desire shall be for your husband. This is the curse for Eve. God is looking at Eve and saying, listen, here's part of the curse now. Here's how sin has fractured the universe. Your desire is going to be for your husband. Now that does not mean that you can't live without your husband, ladies. It doesn't mean that. It means that you're going to have a hard time living under your husband. That's what it means. You're going to have a hard time living under him. Okay, now if you look in chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, that word desire is the same word that God uses to address Cain when God is rebuking Cain, right? And he says, listen, sin is crouching at your door and sin, its desire is for you. That's the same word. Sin's desire is for you, to master you, to rule over you. This is sin's desire for you. And this is what he's saying to Eve. Your desire is for your husband, to rule over him, to dominate him. So you've got this distortion. Now, now this is what it does in ladies. It, it'll force you to one of two extremes. This is what the sinful tendency in your heart is to go to one of two areas when you think authority and submission. Here's, here's tendency number one, extreme number one, is to be overly dominant. So it is to rule your home with an iron fist. It is to wear the pants in your family, right? I mean, th this is one tendency to, to get the, get the you know, controls, command the ship, do your thing, buck your husband's, you know, his, his headship. This is one tendency. Now, I want you to look at me, ladies. I want you to look at me, all the ladies. This has nothing to do with equality before God. 
it ha- it, you, may be, you may have more capacity and more ability to lead in your family. But it has everything to do with calling from God. Okay, now ladies, I want you to get this. If you are being dominant in your home, you have to have the control. You have to call the shot. It has to be your deal. If you're doing that in your home, you are emasculating your man. That's what you're doing. There is a reason that, uh, I've, I've pondered this all week. Why does Paul start with women? I mean, I would probably start with the guys, right? I mean, they're the head, okay, so let's start there. You know why I think he starts with the ladies? Because I don't care if your husband is Billy Graham. He cannot lead you if you won't let him. He can't do it. And so ladies, if your tendency is to be the dominant ruler of your house, and I would encourage you to ask your husband. Don't trust yourself to know if you are. Ask your husband. If this is your tendency to dominate, for for the controls to have to be in your hands, the reins to be in your hand, if this is your tendency, if if you wear the pants in the family, that is a sinful distortion of how God's created you and your husband to work in the context of marriage. Okay, now here's the other tendency in marriage and with authority and submission for ladies is if we can't have the, the, the commands, that if we can't be the dominant ruler, then we'll take a step back and we'll be overly docile. We'll, we'll just step back and, and we'll say, okay, if, if you want to lead, then fine. We'll, we'll be over here. We'll, don't, don't look at us to help. Okay, listen, God has not called you to do that. He has called you to be a suitable helper. Read Proverbs 31. Read that. That is what you are called to be, a suitable helper in the home. This is your God-given design to to live in that. Okay, now here's the other piece of this. is headship and submission, the distortion, is not just on the lady's side. It's also on the man's side. Look at the rest of that in in Genesis 3.16. Here's the next part of that. And he, this is the guy who's going to be your sinful tendency. He shall rule over you. So it also impacts men. So these are the two tendencies that men have. Um, tendency number one that a man has is to be the exact same thing. The dominant ruler. Look at me, men. Men, everywhere look at me. Right here. Headship does not equal dictatorship. It doesn't. And listen, this is why I hesitate to even speak on it. I mean, this is why it makes me really nervous to speak on submission. is because moralistic, legalistic, domineering, dictator-type men have totally abused and manipulated women. That's why. It makes me nervous. It doesn't equal dictatorship. Men, you are not sovereign in your home. God is sovereign, and he has appointed you to be a loving head in your home. Those two are massively different. Your wife does not have to ask you to breathe, okay? And, and if, if she has to, you need to repent. If the air in your house is dictatorship air, you need to repent of that. That is sin. Headship air in the home should breathe gospel into your house. It should breathe into your house a liberating air to allow your kids, your wife, to be all that God intends them to be. That's headship. Okay, so this is tendency number one, into the dictator, into this dominant ruler. And the same tendency is the other side for men. That if they can't have the control, if you want to wear the pants, you want to call the shots, you want to do your deal, I'll be on the couch with a couple of beers watching baseball. Call me if you need me, right? This is the other tendency in a man. If, if, I, can't be the, if I can't be the ruler, then fine. 
I'll sit over here. You can have your way. That's sinful. This is Adam in Genesis chapter 3. He is sitting passively in the shadows while his, while his wife rebels against God. That is, a, that is a sinful position to be in a man. Okay, so you get these two tendencies. This is man's distortion of submission and headship. Now, okay, so if you want to know why submission causes you to reach for the knife, right? Don't go there. Why it causes that is sin. If you want to know why everybody wants to reach for the, like this place of authority rather than submission, it's sin. Think about how this works out in your life. Okay, so, so we don't like the government. So we start complaining. We even get ourselves a blog so the two people who care about what we say can read it, right? So we'll get ourselves a blog. We'll start that going. Man, we'll, we'll rail against our employer. They're complete idiots. They don't know what they're doing. They're completely mismanaging this whole thing, right? If we're a wife, we'll kind of buck the headship of our husband. He's a loser, doesn't know what he's doing. And then we'll look at our kid and we'll say, submit, right? And we'll beat our kid in a good way. To make them submit. Have you ever wondered why that goes on? Right? That that we complain up the ladder, then we look down the ladder at our kids, right? They need to memorize Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 4, right? This is the sinful remnant in all of our heart. This is man's distortion of headship and submission. Okay, so that's the context. Now let's clarify what this means. Oh, let let me give one more under the context here. One more. And this is the beautiful thing of the gospel. The gospel redeems submission. The gospel redeems it. It takes this distortion. It takes the curse of of being trying to be dominant or overly docile. It, It takes that curse and it redeems it. So look at me, ladies. You no longer have to fight for the controls. The gospel frees you from that. You don't have to be the sovereign ruler of your little kingdom. You can trust God and the leadership he's placed above you. Men in the workplace. You don't have to be the sovereign ruler of your workplace. You can trust the authority that God has given you. This is the beauty of the gospel is it doesn't just save us from the wrath of God. It saves us from having to be sovereign in every area of our life. That's what it does. It takes that sinful remnant that remains in your heart that has to be in control and it frees you from that. The gospel redeems submission. Okay, now let's clarify what it means. Here's you a definition of submission. You might want to write this down. This is a good memorizable definition of it. Submission is the joyful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you. Now, that definition applies for more than wives. Men, there are a lot of areas that that definition applies to us, right? So so what I'm saying here has more of a universal application than just wives. But specifically for wives, this means the joyful willingness to follow the one, your husband, that God has placed in authority over you. Okay, so it's joyful. This is not begrudging. The husband has to get a gun out to make you do this, right? This is a joyful willingness to follow. Okay, so so submission means following. It means that we are actively following, and it's voluntary. It's a willing thing. That's in the middle voice, that willing word. So it it has this idea of it's voluntary. People can't make you do it. Your your husband cannot make you do it. And this is why I'm going to say this again. He could be Billy Graham, but if you won't let him lead you, it doesn't matter, right? And so it's it's a joyful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you. Now, I want you to look at verse 23. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. 
it says the husband is the head of the wife. That is in the indicative, is the head. That's in the indicative. And here's what the indicative is. It's a statement of fact. This isn't your husband commanding it. It isn't your husband asking for it. It isn't your husband doing any of those things. It is simply God saying, this is how it is. It's like me calling that stool black or that you're sitting in a chair. It's just a statement of fact. That's what the indicative mood is. It's a statement of fact. And God is saying, as a statement of fact, I'm not commanding this to happen. I'm not saying that the husband needs to do this. I'm saying that this is what the husband is in your life. It is God-placed authority over you. Okay, so this is what submission is. It's the joyful willingness to follow the one God has placed an authority over you. Okay, now let me clarify with some things that, that submission is not. Okay, submission is not these things. Number one, submission does not mean that a wife is unequal to her husband in value, capacity, or competency. A difference in role does not mean inequality in worth, right? So this is not a talk on equality. Wives, chances are you have more capacity, you've got a sharper brain than your man. My wife does, right? Okay, so, so chances are that is true for you. So this has nothing to do with with if you're more or less qualified. This has everything to do with what God has called you to be and what God has called your man to be in your marriage. So nothing to do with competency, capacity, any of those things. It's not an issue of worth or value. Number two, submission does not equal oppression. And so I, I know that in so many areas this has been abused. But just because it has been abused does not mean this is not a good and glorious thing when the gospel redeems it right? So it does not equal um, oppression. Now, husbands, if your headship equals dictatorship to your wife, submission will feel like oppression. But when headship equals, listen to this, when headship equals Christ loving the church, giving to the church, submission will feel to your wife like liberation. Okay, that's how it works. It's not meant to be oppression. Number three, submission does not mean the husband is the wife's ultimate authority. Husbands are under Christ's authority. They don't replace Christ's authority, right? So so wives, submission to your husband stops where disobedience to Jesus starts. That's how this works out. And so we are never to, to submit to people into sin. We're never to do that. I think you've got a good example of this in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and, and, and John, have, they've been preaching. And they're called before the Sanhedrin, the, the, kind of the, the rulers and the government, and the government says, stop doing that. You need to stop preaching right now, or we're going to hurt you really bad, right? Okay, now here's their response. You judge whether or not it's right for me to do that. I mean, you, God has said this, so we're going to do it. So they refuse to obey, and that is completely right. We never submit our way into sin. Okay, now wives, that is clearly defined sin. This is not preference. This is not, well, there's two kind of good options. I really think we should do this. He thinks we should do that. So I'm not budget. I'm not going. It's clearly defined sin. Okay, that's carefully worded. Clearly defined. So when the Bible gives you a black and a white, this is sin. This is not sin. We're not to follow our husbands there. We can't do that. So submission stops where disobedience to Christ starts. Next one. Number four, last one. Submission does not mean a wife must give up on changing her husband. Wives, I'm going to make a risky statement here. 
there is a chance that your husband has some sinful tendencies in him. Does that feel risky? I mean, that felt sarcastic to me, right? Okay, so, so there is a chance that your husband may have some sinful tendencies. But I want you to listen r- real close to this. If you nag your husband, chances are you are sabotaging all hope for change. Yeah, it's interesting when you read through Proverbs, like Proverbs is going to say this, and this applies both ways, by the way. It's not one way, but the Proverbs are going to say this, that a quarrelsome wife, a husband will, will jump up on the roof and take like one little corner of it, this one little co- right, this much of the roof, and he would rather live there than in that house. Right? Now that p- applies both ways, but, but here's the point. If you nag, if you, if you're, if your method, if your M.O. is to nag your husband into change, you destroy all hope of it. Now, this is the ironic thing. L- ladies, look at me here. This is the ironic thing. First Peter 3 says this, that if you joyfully submit to your husband, you're breathing gospel air into your home, and you are promoting change in him by joyful submission. So it doesn't mean that you give up hope for change, but it means that you go after change in the right way. It doesn't mean that there aren't times that you say, this is sinful. I can't go there. But it means that there is a disposition, that you choose your time, your your words. All that is chosen carefully and cautiously. And there's a disposition that says, I want to follow you. But you're not letting me. Now that's going to be interesting. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for us. We'll pick up right here next week. Is that cool? Um, so here, here's what we'll do. Um, offering plates will be up here. If you've got a guest card, you want to stick them in there, that would be awesome. And uh, if you've... If... <laughs> oh my gosh. All control is gone. Okay, good. Um, if you've got a guest card, um, you put it in the offering. If you've got an offering that you need to drop off, we'll just leave these up here at the front. I'll pray for you. Have a good early lunch, right? <laughs> Lord, we love you, and I thank you for uh, your sovereignty over situations like this. God, you're a great God. It's in your good name we pray. Amen.